You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Good morning, church. This is Genesis 35, 1-15. God blesses and redeems Jacob. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother, Yeshua. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourself and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to God who, so I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terrapin tree where that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the son of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, which is the land of Canaan. He had all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. Because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother, and Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel. So he called in the name of Alan Bachel. God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. The fruitful, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with Jacob, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, next week, if you're curious, if you'd like to plan ahead, we're starting a new sermon series on the Psalms. We're going to be doing that throughout the summer. But this week, we are wrapping up our sermon series in Jacob, which we've been slowly trekking through for the past few months. And we'll be going through chapter 35, which sort of serves as a reminder of a lot of the different things we've been talking about. And there's a few concluding remarks as well. And if you're not familiar, here's a big picture summary of his life. Okay, I like big picture summary. So here's a big list of things. Uh, so we talked about how Rebecca was uh, Jacob's mom. She was pregnant and she was struggling uh, with childbirth. And then she had twins, Jacob and Esau. And then we had this sort of a segue to Jacob's father, Isaac. There was a story about him, how God blessed Isaac. And then there was this whole fiasco where uh, he sins against foreigners. He lied about his wife to Abimelech. And then there's a story about Jacob stealing Esau's blessings. And he runs away. And then we have uh, the first occasion, which is at Bethel, which uh, uh, Monty read today. Uh, 
God appeared to Jacob at Bethel, and that was a whole dream of the ladder or stairway to heaven. And um, Jacob arrived at this faraway land called Padan Aram, and there he bumped into Laban. He got married. Uh, where he, he's deceived by Laban, uh, but he ended up with wives, two wives, and he eventually had uh, children. So God blesses Jacob with children, and then he blesses Jacob with flocks. And then he, in turn, deceives Laban, and he runs away uh, back home. And then this is the wrestling scene, sort of the climax of Jacob's life, where Jacob wrestles with God. That's the second major time where God appears to Jacob. And then he has this reconciliation scene where he, uh, instead of running away from Esau and stealing his blessing, now he returns Esau's blessings to him, which we talked about a few weeks ago. And then last week we talked about this, another segue story, which is where Jason, uh, Jacob's family sins against these foreigners. First they were sinned against. Jacob's daughter was sexually assaulted, and then in turn, some of his sons went out and went on this vengeance massacre. And then today we talk about how God appeared to Jacob once more, and he blesses him. And after this passage, we're not going to read it, but uh, Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, dies giving birth to her second child, Benjamin. And so that's sort of a a big picture uh, summary of Jacob's life. And you might notice, I have these letters up here. Some scholars have pointed out that Jacob's life is this big picture chiasm. And chiasm is just this fancy word that a lot of ancient uh, writings employ, which is that the first part corresponds to the last part, the second part corresponds to the second to last part, and so on. And so you can see this big chiasm going on in Jacob's life. There's a lot of parallels going on. And, uh, and if you look at Jacob's life, there's a lot of different things you can pull out of a bit. But uh, one thing I want to point out is this theme, which is, that despite the sin in Jacob's life, God continues to faithfully bless him. That seems to be this reoccurring theme. Despite the sin in Jacob's life, God continually, faithfully blesses him. Despite his deceptive actions towards his family, toward his brother, toward his father, despite his failure to have a healthy, stable family, remember the whole fiasco with his, his wives bickering with one another, trying to have this childbearing contest, Despite his difficulties with his boss-slash-father-in-law, Laban, and how he was being cheated over and over. Despite Dina, his daughter's attack, and the subsequent uh, massacre of his sons. Despite all of that, God appears over and over and over to bless him. As if these things never happened. To keep him safe, to keep him prosperous. And surely, in verse 1... Uh, that Monty read, when God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, Jacob must have recalled this whole life that he led, this whole, he, he, he could have remembered, over 20 years ago, God appeared to him in Bethel, and that's when God told him he would be with them, he would promise to bless them, and he would look back over the past 20 years of his life and see that, he would see that trend. Surely he was recalling his life, and he was remembering that God was true to his promise. And so, God, uh, so now Jacob hears that God wants him to go back to Bethel, to go back to the place where God first met him, to build an altar there. So he obeys. He's eager to obey. And so in verse 2, he tells his family to put away all their foreign gods. And uh, it's kind of interesting that they have foreign gods in the first place, but they do. But he puts them all away. And the language is very similar later to in Joshua 24. Joshua also tells the people of Israel, he says, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord the God of Israel. So that's what Jacob is telling his family. He says, yeah, these foreign gods, we're not going to do this dabbling in God's business. We're going to be obedient and committed and devout, devoted to this one God. 
And you see, the only proper response to the grace of God in your life is the worship of God. The worship of God is the only proper response to the grace of God. And that's what we can learn from Jacob's example. When you recognize the depth of your sin, which Jacob recognized, his life was filled with sin, and you recognize the commitment of God's faithfulness, and you recognize that God was continually faithful to him, the only possible response is worship, is surrender and worship. Jacob here recognizes that God has been faithful to him to all these years, and so now he surrenders to him, he worships him, and that's a picture of how I think we should respond to God as well. Maybe we're not building altars. Maybe we're not uh, burying idol figurines. Uh, But I think the principle is still the same, which is that we look at our life, we examine what commands authority in our life, what commands uh, our our time and our money and our energy, and we see that these these things are competing against God in our lives. And what we do is we metaphorically, we bury them and we declare our allegiance to God. And if you look at your life and you don't see that attitude, that mentality, that lifestyle, of exclusive worship to God, then maybe you don't understand the grace of God. Maybe you don't yet understand the depths of your sin or you don't understand the depths of God's faithfulness. And so I ask you to ask God to open up your eyes to see that and respond in worship. I want to skip down to verse 5. Verse 5 notes, this is pretty interesting, that a tear from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob so remember in the last chapter we talked about this, Jacob was afraid for his life. That's where the last chapter left us off because uh, his sons had just slaughtered a town. And so he, the last chapter left, let, let us, uh, you know, in Jacob's shoes. And Jacob is wondering what's going to happen to him and his family because the people of the land, they're going to hear about this and they're going to rise up and get vengeance uh, because his, his sons just killed off this town. And here we see God had his, has his back. And God once again protects him from harm. And so it's just, it's one verse, but it's just a little glimpse. Once again, another reminder that even though Jacob's family had sinned, God is still faithful despite his failures. So he builds this altar. And in in verse 9 through 15, we have this exchange between God and Jacob. And it's a series of deja vu moments. What I mean by that is almost everything that happened here, verses 9 through 15, has happened before. And I'm going to show you verse 9. Jake, uh, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And that's fascinating because a similar thing happened in Genesis 32, 28 to 29, a few chapters before. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name there? He blessed him. So it's a very similar thing. God blesses him, and he changes his name to Israel. So I might have wondered, why is he changing his name again? I thought his name was already Israel, but he says, your name is Jacob. Your name is now Israel. And that happens, okay? So notice that. I'm going to go back to chapter 35, uh, verse 11. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So there's a few things going on. God calls himself God Almighty. Hebrew is El Shaddai. We sing that sometimes in songs. Now you know what it means. He commands Jacob to be fruitful and to multiply. Uh, He promises that Jacob will have possession of land. He ensures that Jacob will receive the inheritance of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And all this is actually a recollection of a blessing that his father Isaac had given him. In Genesis 28, verses 3 to 4. So I'm going to read this. Genesis 28, 3 to 4. 
This is what Isaac said to, to Jacob. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So you see all these parallels, right? The same things that, were, that Isaac said to Jacob were echoed here when God appears to Jacob. Back to Jacob, sorry, back to Genesis 35, verse 13. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. And this is odd also because this scene also happened. Uh, in, in chapter 28, verses 18 through 19, and this was right after the aftermath of the whole dream that God gave to him in the staircase to heaven. 28, 18 through 19. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city was Luz at the first. So what's going on? So he, both times, Jacob set up a pillar of stone, he poured oil on it, and he renamed the place Bethel. And so why is there this thing going on where these things are happening over and over, where you, you, we thought Jacob had already changed his name, but then God renamed him again. We thought Jacob had already renamed this place Bethel, but he renamed the place again. It's like the, um, I don't know if you've seen the Matrix, where uh, the cat walks by twice, and we go, this is a glitch in the Matrix. It's almost like that, right? Anyways, what? Think, I think what's going on is um, God is trying to show Jacob that no matter what happened, doesn't matter what happened in the past, doesn't matter what happened last week, God is still faithful. God is unchanging. God is still the same. The deal that he made with Jacob Back in chapter 28, where he first appeared to him in Bethel, where he said, I want to bless you, I want to multiply you, I want to be with you, that deal is still on. Even though a lot has happened since then, God is reminding Jacob the deal is still on. His character is still the same. His promises are still the same. His faithfulness is still the same. And so he says the exact same thing to Jacob that he said before. And I think he's essentially saying, don't worry. I know you've made mistakes. I know you've gone through a lot. Some horrible things happen, and you may wonder if we're still good, but we are. I have your back, so don't worry. I view you the same way as I did before. And I think deep down inside, Jacob must have felt this huge sigh of relief. Because he must have wondered, as we all do, whether God is a God who would really keep his word. Whether God would really stay the same, even though we're not the same. You know, think about it. His whole life, Jacob saw people deceiving one another. You saw people manipulating one another. You saw this happen with, you know, Isaac and King Abimelech in Genesis 26. He saw this when, you know, his mother was plotting against his father to try to steal the blessing from Esau. He saw this when his own father-in-law Laban was trying to take advantage of him and uh, giving him, you know, a wife he didn't want. He saw this when his sons were pretending to be compliant with his village and they actually plotted this massacre um, and he saw in his own heart, of course, when he deceived his own brother, he deceived his own father. And so all he knew, all he knew was this world of deception and manipulation, and he must have wondered whether God was like that too. Will God really be with me until the end? Will God really fight for me even when I sin? Have I fallen out of favor with God? And I think many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we think very similar things too. Many, maybe some of you, you uh, feel stuck. 
You feel absolutely immersed in this deep cycle of sin. And in the middle of all, maybe you've wondered similar things. Maybe you've asked, has God given up on me? Or maybe you've been a victim of immense suffering. And sometimes you've wondered, has God abandoned me? Am I alone? Or maybe you've suffered from illness or poverty or the death of a loved one. And you wonder, is is God still with me? The story of Jacob should be a fresh reminder to us all that God will never leave you or forsake you no matter what. You may be in a Genesis 34 situation. That was last week uh, with the whole sexual assault, revenge, that whole incident. You may be experiencing something like that. And one thing that's fascinating about Genesis 34 is that God is never mentioned at all. And in your life, you may feel like that too. God doesn't appear at all. And maybe you're going through something like that. You feel alone or stuck or abused or ashamed or lost. And it seems like God isn't there. But I want you to know that Genesis 35 is coming. That God will show up. He will answer. And maybe he won't tell you something that's radically new or different. He might actually tell you the same exact thing that you already know. But that's how often God works. That you might sometimes in your Christian growth learn new things. But other times, the way we grow is we actually learn the same things, but we learn them over and over and over again. You go through some difficult situations, situations that challenge you, that stretch you, and they force you to ask hard questions. And and during those moments, God shows up, and he tells you what you already know. And you're able to understand experientially what you thought you understood intellectually. You know, for example... This has happened to me a lot. Uh, there are plenty of passages that talk about God being a father, talk about God being a loving father. He never leaves you. He's unconditional. And I knew all these things intellectually. Uh, I understood these things. But at the age of 21, when my own dad left my family, when my own dad caused our relationship to fall apart so that I... Um, so I... D- uh, my, my relationship with it forever changed. I would talk to him maybe once a year now, and it's very superficial. When I experienced that, then I was able to understand all those passages in the Bible that talked about God being a loving father. Another example, you know, there are a lot of passages that talk about God uh, being a groom to his bride, right? In, in the New Testament, Jesus is talked about as a groom, and the church is the bride of Christ. And I knew all that. I understood all that intellectually. But then I got married, And I was able to see my shortcomings and how I let my wife down over and over and over again. And how I failed. And I had selfishness and pride and bitterness. And only then did I realize what it truly meant. Experientially, I was able to recognize what it meant that God is a a husband to his bride, the church. In both cases, God never changed. It's not like the Bible changed. It's not like his character changed or his promises changed, but I changed. And because I changed, the way I interacted with God changed. I was able to understand the same gospel truths with new eyes. So right now, if you are in a difficult situation, if you're asking hard questions, I want to suggest that might be God's way of changing you so that you're able to interact with God with new eyes, so that you're able to understand the same gospel truths in a way you never did before. So I encourage you to be honest with God about what you're going through, lift it up to him. Let him speak to the words that you thought you knew, but you actually never did. 
Let's keep going. There's one more thing I want to point out in this passage, Genesis 35. We skipped over this, verse 8, but I'm going to go back to that. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. And so he called its name Elon Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. Now, we don't know much about this person, Deborah. This is the only time where she's explicitly named. There's another Deborah in the Bible. But this is the only time where this Deborah is explicitly named. Uh, we don't know why she's even with Jacob at this time. But obviously her death caused a lot of sorrow because they named this place an Oak of Weeping. And it's interesting that this is here. It's abrupt, first of all, because it's sort of out of place. Uh, you have God telling Jacob to build this altar. He's obedient. He puts away his idols. He goes to this place. He builds an altar. And then you have this one verse that mentions, then Deborah died and they're weeping. And then you have this verse where God blesses Jacob. So it's kind of odd that this place is here. And it's even more confusing because Deborah's death is actually the first of three deaths in this chapter. We didn't read the whole chapter, but later in this chapter, Jacob's wife Rachel dies of childbirth. And at the end of the chapter, Jacob's father Isaac dies of old age. And so we see three deaths in this chapter. And there's another very confusing verse in verse 22. We also didn't read it, but in this chapter, I'm going to read it. While Israel, Jacob, lived in the land, Reuben, this is Jacob's oldest son, went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So this is a very bizarre verse. It's just, there's no commentary before or after. This is just a verse out of the blue, right? And it's, okay, so this is not appropriate for a number of reasons. Number one, Jacob had a concubine. That's no, no, don't do that. Okay, and number two, uh, his oldest son went to bed with his concubine. That's also pretty horrible. So that's really strange that this verse is even here. So what's going on? You have three incidents in this chapter of people dying, and you have this verse out of the blue of this egregious sin going on in Jacob's family. Why are these things here? It seems like the chapter is, uh, the thrust of the chapter is this affirmation of God's promises to Jacob, but you also have in the chapter these few random verses that talk about sin and suffering still going on in Jacob's life. And I think it's meant to show that even though, even though God is unchanging, even though God is faithful, even though God continually promises to bless Jacob, Jacob's family still is marked by sin and suffering and death. Sin and suffering still cling to Jacob. He's still fallen. He's still broken. He's still not whole. And the reader, I think, is supposed to read all of these things and wonder, why is that the case? Why is it like this? We're supposed to be bewildered and wondering. And in fact, throughout the Old Testament, I, I think we're supposed to have these similar feelings. We read about these people who seem to be heroes. We read about Moses and David and they seem to do great things, and God appears to them and promises them great things. But all, almost all these characters, we see glimpses of failure here and there. We see these flaws. We see these mistakes. We see these sins. We see glimpses of suffering and death. And I think we're supposed to be left bewildered. Why are all these people acting this way? Why couldn't they get their life together even after God has appeared to them so many times and blessed them so many times? And I think these examples are supposed to do two things. One, they speak to us because our lives are just the same. That God appears to us and blesses us and gives promises to us, but we still mess up. We still fall short. We fail. And I think it's a comfort to us. And number two, I think what these stories do is they point to Jesus, the only one who has never failed. You know why it's difficult for us sometimes to trust in God? Why it's difficult for us to trust that God hasn't left us? Why it's difficult for us to trust that God may not pull us through. 
is because all we've ever known are people who have let us down. All we've ever known are people who have let us down. People who have broken their promises, people who abandoned us or hurt us, people who betray us, and that's the human condition. All we've ever known from the dawn of history until the now, and we see it in our own hearts, people who are not faithful, people who change, people who lie and deceive and manipulate. And sometimes we project those experiences onto God as well, and we think that God might be the same. And so what God did was he sent his own son, Jesus, down to earth. And Jesus showed us how to be a man who kept his word. Jesus showed us how to be a man who kept his promises. Jesus showed us how to be a man who would never fail, never make a single mistake. He would stick it out to the end, even until death. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus personified in the flesh this truth that God is unchanging, that God is faithful, that God is with us, and he's never left us. So if you ever wonder whether God has abandoned you, if you ever wonder whether God will leave you, if you ever wonder, if you ever wonder whether God will turn the tables on you, all you got to do is look at Jesus. And you'll recognize that at the cross, God abandoned Jesus so that he will never have to abandon you. Remember when God appeared to Jacob and twice God named this place Bethel. Bethel means house of God. Why did he name that place the house of God? I think he recognized that something was going on that was out of the ordinary, that wasn't supposed to happen, which it was this little glimpse that God wanted to dwell with human beings. God wanted to set up on earth his own house, a place where he can commune with humanity, a place where he could be with us, live with us. And that was a little glimpse of that. And when Jesus came, John 1 says that Jesus came and tabernacled among us. He essentially pitched his tent among us. He set up his house among us. And what he did was he started the church, and the New Testament calls the church the house of God. In other words, the church is the permanent residence of God here on earth. And that's what, God was always, that's what Jesus was always saying, your kingdom come, your will be done. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is among you. God is dwelling with humanity forever. When Jesus literally came and lived with us and he promised to dwell with us, he had the name Emmanuel, God with us, he was letting us know that he would never leave us or forsake us forever. And so just as Jacob would look at this monument, this little stone pillar he set up, and he would remember the promises of God, that God would never leave him, so we can look at the cross and we can remember God will never leave us. It doesn't matter if you've been a victim of sin over and over and over again. It doesn't matter if you've been a perpetrator of sin over and over and over again. You may change, but God will never change. If you're relatively new to the Christian faith, um, and frankly, maybe you're here and you've had difficulty placing trust, placing your faith in God, I'm glad you're here. I want to invite you to be a part of God's family. I want to invite you to join our church and and all our church is, all our church is, is just a collection of broken people just reminding ourselves of the God who wasn't broken, who saved us. That's all our church is. And I invite you to uh, receive this gospel. It's old and new at the same time. It's the same old story, but it's new and breathtaking every time we hear it. And the gospel is that God so loved the world, he sent Jesus to die for sinners so that he can dwell with us forever.
Maybe some of you here, you're not new to the Christian faith. Maybe you've made a decision at one point in time a long time ago to follow Jesus. Uh, But maybe here, you're looking at your life just as Jacob looked back at his life, and you're recalling how maybe at one point in time you had a very vibrant faith. And now things seem kind of dry and boring and monotonous. And uh, you haven't been as intimate. Maybe you haven't been as prayerful. You haven't been as in touch with Christian community. And I want you to know that while you have changed, God has not changed. And God is extending an invitation to come back, to come back, to be with him, to experience the same gospel truths in a new way. And maybe some of you right now, you're in a difficult situation. You're in a Genesis 34 situation. Maybe your life is crazy and you have thought, maybe I should give up. I want you to remind you, I want to remind you that even if You give up on yourself. God will never give up on you. How do I know? Because God gave up his son so that he could have you. He wants you and he wants to win you back. So keep holding on. In a moment, we're going to be moving into a time of communion. And communion is a time when we remember that God kept his promises. One of the interesting things about communion is it's always the same. It's always the same. Every time we come up to the table... We take the bread, which represents Jesus' body. We dip it in the cup, which represents Jesus' blood shed for us. And we take it and remind ourselves of the fact that Jesus died so that we may have life. Every time is the same. We do the same thing over and over and over again. And it's a reminder that God is the same. God has never changed. Even though your past month might have been different than the month before, even though today might be different than the day before, even though you might have changed, God hasn't changed at all. So every week we take communion the same exact way. So when you're ready, feel free to line up on either side of the aisle, take communion. And if you like to talk, if you like to receive prayer during that time, I'll be at the front. Feel free to come up and I can pray for you. Um, but if you like to take communion, line up on either side, take the bread, dip it in the cup, eat it right there. And remember Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you never change, that even though we mess up, even though we fail, even though we hurt, even though we suffer, your love endures forever. We think that you never give up on us, even though we sometimes even give up on ourselves. Sometimes we are at dead ends and we wonder whether it's worth it to keep going, whether, whether you've given up on us, whether you've left us or abandoned us. And we can remember that just as you stayed faithful to Jacob, you'll stay faithful to us. And we can know without a shadow of a doubt because of Jesus. So whatever you're calling us to do today, whether you is to trust in you for the very first time or whether it's to trust in you for the thousandth time, may we do that today. As the old hymn goes, the earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.